Hello, it's Tuesday, the 9th of January, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Won j a n g w o The Democratic Party has unilaterally passed a bill to open an investigation into the Itaewon crowd crush after negotiations with the ruling People Power Party broke down. We'll have the latest in news briefing shortly. For our in-depth today, we look at how advancement in AI technology is fueling concerns about misinformation, especially as over 50 nations around the globe are set to take part in major elections this year. And coming up for Touch Base in Seoul, we meet a Korean-American hospital chaplain to discuss what he's learned after counselling thousands of people on their deathbeds. We have all that and more in today's Korea 24. The main opposition Democratic Party has railroaded the bill on a probe into the 2022 Itaewon crowd crush after negotiations with the ruling People Power Party fell through. Our KBS World Radio news editor, Koo Hee-jin, joins us in the studio now to bring us the latest from the National Assembly, as well as our other headlines of the day. Hee-jin, hello. Hello, j a n g So after negotiations broke down, I understand that PPP lawmakers did not take part in the vote for the bill at all. So what can you tell us? Well, in the vote on Tuesday, the Act passed with only uh, 177 lawmakers, most of them from the DP, that took part in supporting it, while the ruling camp boycotted the vote. Uh, PPP floor leader Yoon j e o k earlier said that the ruling, uh, par- ruling party lawmakers will not take part in the voting and instead hold a rally protesting the unilateral move. Despite signs of progress in negotiations on the establishment of a special investigative uh, committee to uh, examine the tragedy as the PPP seemed to reverse this earlier outright rejection, differences over the panel's composition, authority and r e c o m m e n d a t i o n process for standing members were a bridge too far. The PPP has yet to announce whether it will call on President Yoon Suk-yeol to veto the bill. The presidential office released a statement to reporters expressing regret over the passing of the bill, and it said it will discuss the matter with relevant agencies and the ruling party. Rival parties managed to form a consensus on another bill, though, one that prohibits the slaughter, breeding and distribution of dogs for consumption. which passed through the National Assembly on Tuesday. Quite a landmark vote. Can you tell us more? Mm-hmm. The penalties for slaughtering dogs for consumption involve up to three years of imprisonment or fines of up to 30 million won or nearly 29,000 US dollars, while breeding, raising or distributing dogs for such purposes can lead to imprisonment of up to two years or fines of up to 20 million won. There is, however, a grace period of three years before the penalties are imposed. In addition, dog breeding farms, dog meat slaughterhouses, distributors and restaurant owners must register their facilities and businesses' uh, details with the head of the local government, while the central and local governments are required to provide financial support for any closures or change of business. Right, so it seems it could be the beginning of the end for dog meat culture in Korea. Mm -hmm. Let's turn now to the economy. South Korea logged a current account surplus for the seventh consecutive month in November. 
Can you break down the figures for us? Well, according to data from the Bank of Korea on Tuesday, the country's current account surplus for the month reached 4.06 billion US dollars. While the current account has remained in the black for seven months in a row, the combined surplus for the first 11 months of the year stood at $27.4 billion, up about $300 million from the same period of the previous year. Individually, the goods account uh, continued an eight-month surplus streak at over $7 billion. Exports increased 7% on-year to $56.4 billion in November, expanding the second consecutive month with a rebound in October after uh, declining for 14 months straight, while imports slipped uh, 8% on-year to $49.4 billion. However, Samsung Electronics announced its worst earnings in 15 years for 2023 due to a global slump in the chip industry. Unfortunately so. The tech giant estimated on Tuesday that its operating profit posted 6.54 trillion won or some 4.99 billion US dollars in 2023, down 84.9% from a year earlier, while sales dropped 14.5% from last year to total 258.16 trillion won. The annual operating profit fell below 10 trillion won for the first time in 15 years since posting 6.03 in 2008 during the global financial crisis. The drop is mainly due to, as you said, the sluggish semiconductor sector, with the chip business logging a cumulative deficit of 12 trillion won in the first three quarters of last year. Well, regardless of its performance, Samsung Electronics is one of the biggest participants in this year's Consumer Electronics Show, of course, the world's largest fair for tech companies, which is opening Tuesday. And this year's dominating theme for the event is artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Companies from around the world are looking to showcase the impact of AI on daily lives in the next five to ten years. So what can you tell us about the event? Well, over 3,500 companies from 150 countries are converging on Las Vegas from January 9th to the 12th for the 2024 uh, CES. Attending the largest CES since the COVID-19 pandemic are some 500 entities from South Korea, including major corporations and startups looking to unveil their latest advances. This year's event will kick off with the theme of All Together, All On, signifying the collaboration of all industries to solve everyday issues through their innovations. And can you give us an idea of what will be on display? Well, during the first media day on Sunday, AI technology was pre- uh, prevalent in everyday items such as toothbrushes, with a device by a US startup assisting uh, users with a mounted screen and voice guide while South Korean startup Temmines featured its AI-equipped motion pillow, which helps reduce snoring by gently turning the user's head while sleeping uh, uh, to improve airflow. Industry goliaths such as uh, Samsung Electronics and uh, LG Electronics again showcased their latest uh, television technology with increased AI features, including the Samsung Neo QLED 8 K flat screen and LG 2024 uh, 20, uh, OLED uh, TV. Some 130,000 visitors are set to attend the 2024 CES, prior to which 143 South Korean companies receiving innovation awards from the show recognizing their technology. Going back to local politics, rival political parties adopted a confirmation hearing report 
for Foreign Minister nominee Cho Tae-yeol. Can you tell us more? Well, the Parliamentary Foreign Affairs Committee commit, uh, adopted the report during a plenary session on Tuesday with an overall assessment that the nominee is qualified for the job thanks to his experience as a career diplomat and lack of shortcomings in his personal life. The report also included dissenting opinions about his suitability, uh, citing an alleged role in the judicial meddling of the Park Geun-hye administration to delay a ruling on compensation for Korean victims of Japan's wartime forced labor. Cho's uh, spe- uh, speculative uh, involvement was the center of a partisan clash during his hearing on Monday, with the opposition accusing the former second vice foreign minister of discussing the matter with Im Jong-un, the deputy at the National Court Administration at the time. That's all for our news briefing today. He's in. Thank you for those updates. Thank you. Twenty twenty four is said to be the biggest election year in history. More than two billion people across fifty countries are set to go to the polls this year, including seven of the world's ten most populous nations. South Korea is also set to hold a general election for the National Assembly in April. However, against the backdrop of escalating geopolitical tensions rising from conflicts such as the Ukraine war and the Israel-Hamas war. The outcomes of these elections hold the potential to stir considerable global upheaval. Amid this situation, fears are growing of the negative impact that artificial intelligence could have on these elections. Experts warn that the recent advancements in AI are expected to exacerbate the spread of misinformation. To get some expert analysis on these concerns, we're joined on the line by two guests. First, we have Professor. Im Jong Sup from the Department of Journalism at the College of Media, Arts and Science at Sogang University. Professor Im, hello. Hello. How are you? Yes, it's great to have you on the show today. And we also joined by Dr. Oren Etzioni, CEO of the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, and Professor Emeritus of Computer Science at the University of Washington. Dr. Etzioni, hello to you too. It is a pleasure to join you, particularly on such an important topic. Thank you. Thank you for your time, both of you, Professor Im. Let me start with you. How real is the concern of fake news and misinformation ahead of all these elections around the world this year? Uh, you know, the first, I want to instead of using the term fake news, uh, I prefer to categorize as disinformation or misinformation or manipulated information. And to be more uh, precise. It falls under the umbrella of computational propaganda, which means uh, some organizations use algorithms to disseminate uh, misleading content across the social media platform. And here's a platform means you know, in U.S. like WhatsApp, Telegram, YouTube, and here in Korea, the famous one is Kakao Talk. So uh, I want to introduce in you know, a just showed very interesting uh, the research. Uh, it is announced in 2018. Two researchers at the University of Oxford uh, published a working paper, and the title is "Challenging Truths and Trust: A Global Inventory of Organized Social Media uh, Manipulation." Uh, in their uh, papers, 
they say uh, various entities, including like government agency, uh, politician and parties, uh, private contract, even the civil society organization, they engage in computational propaganda through the, uh, the creation of fake account. So to answer your uh, question, I think the, there's a lot of you know, this kind of computational propaganda will surface because they want to secure political support and ultimately influence the outcome of the elections. Dr. Edziani, what about you? How serious do you think the situation could get this year? Well, first of all, I, I agree with my colleague. And to just put it uh, very simply, uh, we are expecting a, a tsunami of misinformation. It's um, going to be huge. It's going to be unprecedented because of the advances of technology. And we are already seeing in uh, different uh, elections taking place around the world. We're already seeing uh, examples of that uh, in various political conflicts. And uh, the, the trends are all showing that the problem is increasing. Wow, so a tsunami of misinformation, that is quite a stark warning. Uh, and Dr. Ezioni, this is your specialist field when it comes to uh, AI technologies. How are the latest AI technologies used to create misinformation? Can you share with us any pertinent or worrying examples that can illustrate this at the moment? Sure. So first of all, uh, I think uh, most people have heard of uh, Chat GPT or similar uh, AI chatbots that have become extremely powerful over the last year or so. This, what's called generative AI, uh, is the ability to generate uh, documents, but not just text, also uh, images, audio, and, uh, and even video. The problem is the technology has become so powerful that it's really quite easy to generate media that is very realistic. You cannot tell it apart from real media with the naked eye, but it's completely fake. This is called uh, deep fakes. And uh, just as an example, I was recently sent a video that apparently has been uh, playing, has been uh, shared extensively on Twitter and other and Facebook, other social networks in the Middle East. And it shows um, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian leader, belly dancing. The only problem with it is that it's completely fake. It's uh, his face superimposed on a, uh, a different man who, who is, is doing the dance. And so with these kinds of things, we, we can just see things with our own eyes that did not happen because of uh, fake videos. Right. I guess Zelensky belly dancing uh, can be seen as just a bit of fun, but uh, the power, it shows how powerful the technology has come, uh, that such footage looks uh, so realistic, and uh, how that can be perhaps used for more uh, darker purposes is what's concerning us here, really. Uh, Professor Im, how yeah. concerned are you about the AI fake news? Uh, is there any examples that you can give that perhaps illustrates uh, what you're worried about? Uh, you know, I want to add uh, first to the, the professor, you know, the example. Mm. Uh, the term is UAINS. It stands for 
unreliable AI-generated news site, and the NewsGuard, a uh, media watch uh, in watch group, they identified uh, you know these types of uh, content. They call this next generation of content form, and then uh, they uh, surveyed the number of these sites, like an increase from 49 uh, domain in May, you know, uh, 2023 to. Uh, 614 as of December 2023. So that tells like more than 12 times increase. So one of the examples is in in US, uh, I just said that. Metric media, the AI automatically uh, generate all in a different kind of news stories. So my concern is if the the reader is not capable of understanding how this news is produced, they might believe you know, the argument or the information in that content, and that might be affected their decision in the election process. Right, indeed. Uh, another example was a recent election in Slovakia where AI-generated audio clips impersonating a liberal candidate mm-hmm. were distributed. The AI-generated voice discussed plans to raise beer prices and rig the election. But this was shared as real across social media, uh, regardless of the fact that it was a fake news. And that's the concern, the way it's also spread as well, right? People share video footage or other types of content of candidates or parties via messaging apps to family and friends. And because we often trust these people, it's perhaps easier for us to be duped. Professor Im, so how do we discern what is authentic and what is fake? Is there a way to tell? Uh, you know, there's, uh, there's a two uh, approach. First one is the news media. They have to more active role to determine or provide like an original source uh, in response to some contention or particular uh, news story or AI generated story. Uh, the other side is you know, news consumer. They also should be very active researcher, which means when they uh, you know read some news story. And they need to conduct like some keyword search by using specific word appearing in a news story to find out uh, how other sources uh, tell regarding the issue. And the other one is is called the cross-checking uh, behavior, which is conducted by many journalists. So the people they need to verify the credibility of original source, like by following or checking the link provided in a news story. So that's, it takes some time, but mm. people need to take up that kind of habit before they decide or believe, you know, those content, even provided by their, you know, the colleague or other friends. Right. So the public, we need to be sceptical and verify anything we see. But Dr. Edzioni, uh, we would perhaps need to have doubts initially uh, about what we've been sent. Do you have any tips for us on how to perhaps spot fake news? How do you discern what's real and what's fake? Well, the the challenging while there are some algorithms for doing that and some tools, they're generally not publicly available. So uh, if you see uh, something fake, it would be wonderful if there was a tool where you could put in the URL, you could upload the image or the video or, or uh, even the, the text and, um, and get an assessment. We are actually working 
on uh, such a tool and a new project. It's not part of the Allen Institute for AI, but a new project in Seattle. But the tool is not available yet. So right now, really the most important thing is to be skeptical and for people to be educated that unless you get this from a reliable source originally, right, not your friend forwarded it to you and you trust your friend, but where did your friend get it from? You got it from another friend and so on and so on. What's really essential is to ask where did the information, video, text, et cetera, article, where did it come from originally? And I think we're still in a position where we can trust uh, bona fide sources like uh, the, the New York Times or uh, KBS Radio, right? I'm, I'm real. I'm not fake. I uh, assure you of, uh, of that. But, uh, and of course, you've, you've verified that in, in a number of ways. But um, when it comes to stuff that's shared on social media, it's a huge problem. And you mentioned that my example of uh, the Ukrainian leader belly dancing would be an example, could be something people thought was amusing or minor. Well, out of the conflict in Gaza, there were automatically generated fake pictures of uh, babies being hurt in Gaza, and they're designed to uh, provoke uh, outrage and for people to share um, broadly because they're so outraged. So it is absolutely essential to, to check your sources and to be educated about this problem. I'm also interested in the tool you mentioned that uh, you uh, might be developing as well. So there is a way then possibly to use technologies to help filter fake news on our smartphones and computers uh, soon. Is that something we can perhaps uh, rely on moving forward? Is, that, is there perhaps a glimmer of hope uh, to battle this uh, fake news in that way? There is definitely hope, and I would say that uh, we are uh, building and utilizing detection technology. There's also technology that tracks the uh, provenance, where, where, where did things come from. There's also even on places like uh, X, right, which used to be called Twitter, right now there are community notes where people point out right, that the technology is simply for uh, users to point out that something that's being shared is uh, is incorrect and for other people to rate that as useful or not. So the community is using technology to kind of um, police and inform itself. And there are also uh, regulatory actions. People are working on rules and regulations and laws to, uh, to make this sort of thing um, illegal. The problem is that all these pieces that I'm describing, regulation, education, uh, technology, are not moving as fast as the deep fake technology. So we still have a problem. And while I definitely have some hope, I would say that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Right. I guess uh, governments and organizations are trying to catch up with this technology and it is uh, at a situation now where, uh, for now, the public has to uh, perhaps be sceptical and use our own judgment to try and fake out and weed, uh, weed out uh, fake news. Uh, Professor Im, yeah. how much 
responsibility do you think social media companies also and other media companies need to take for this situation? Do you have any suggestions for them to help prevent the surge of fake news and help people uh, find what's real and what's not uh, as we come uh, to these important elections this year? Uh, you know, first of all, I think they should be more transparent. You know, when they uh, provide, like when they allow people to have some links to outside sources, uh, they need declares that source is believable, is not fake, or even they can provide some device you know, to check the like uh, the validity of those link. One example is, you know, I did actually one time in other uh, studies, like uh, they can ca- you know, calculate the similarity between two content. So let's say one content is come from some fake sources and the other one is from original sources. And then they can compare those two contents, how similar by using, you know, there's some statistic index, which mm. is called one is cosine similarity, or the other one is Euclidean similarity. I think a statistician they well know about this one, but it's quite a simple, but very systematic uh, procedure to determine uh, the similarity. So cosine similarity, the value is pretty high, which means they're really similar. So uh, the fake content is not created in vacuums. They got the information from other sources, but AI generated it automatically, quite fast and very powerful way. But we, the social media provider, they need to know they provide valid sources, but sometimes it can be generated AI, so I suggest they provide more uh, systematic device. So if user clicks some link, and that link's content can be a similar or is totally different or valid one by using this kind of index cosine similarity or including similarity things. Right, so social yeah. media companies need to perhaps lean more uh, and do more uh, with technologies to try and help uh, weed out this uh, fake news and misinformation. Dr. Hetzioni, what other suggestions might you have for social media companies and any other companies to try and uh, tackle the scourge of fake news and misinformation? I think that social media companies, like you say, have a very important uh, responsibility here. I would encourage them, while in the past they've actually fired some of the teams focused on this. This is documented, for example, at Meta. Uh, a number of teams focused on this were fired and a number of efforts were disbanded. I would encourage them to do, for example, what uh, YouTube did very recently. They updated uh, their policy to uh, disallow fake and manipulated media after particularly uh, gruesome uh, uh, images, again, of of children. I, I almost can't uh, talk about it. I don't want to go into the details, but the the I I, I think that um, there's things that they can do, and they need to not only emphasize their short-term profits. Uh, and uh, I, I really hope that, particularly in the context of, as you said, uh, 250 million people going to elections all over the world, that they will step up 
and um, do their moral duty, their uh, responsibility to their users and to democracies worldwide. And hopefully in the meantime, discussions like this will help raise awareness that people will be more uh, alert to the possibility of fake news. But it does look like it is going to be a long battle this year with this uh, with this battle against misinformation. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. We've been speaking to Professor Im Jong-sup from Sarang University and Dr. Oren Etzioni from the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Thank you both for your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index fell 6.58 points, or 0.26% on Tuesday, to close the day at 2,561.24. The tech-heavy KOSDAQ rose, however, gaining 5.30 points, or 0.6%, to close at 884.64. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 0.31 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,315.71. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, it's Korea Trending, our daily segments where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have with us in the studio, Diane Yu. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, jang So what do you have for us first today? During winter, you can easily hear people coughing and sniffing around you, and that's because of seasonal influenza or flu. It's common in all parts of the world during this season, but as influenza continues to spread, the supply of flu treatment injections is failing to keep up with demand, causing a shortage in South Korea. Right, there are actually two types of treatments for fighting off influenza, right? Can you walk us through what they are? Yes, according to the medical community, the antiviral drugs prescribed for flu patients include oral medicines such as Tamiflu and the injectable form of Paramiflu. Tamiflu must be taken in the morning and evening for five days, but Paramiflu only needs to be administered once like an intravenous shot. And that is why people are opting to go uh, the injection route despite its hefty price tag. Prescription costs for Paramiflu range from 70,000 to 150,001, which is about 53 to 114 US dollars. I see. A, a single shot certainly sounds more convenient than a regimen of pills, but there's right. also a perception among patients that they can feel the effects of the injection more quickly mm. than oral medicine, right? But that's mm. not backed up by the evidence. No. He- health experts say that the effects of oral treatments and injectable drugs are the same, so there's no need to favor intravenous antiviral drugs for the treatment of influenza. In order to combat the shortage, the government has asked the medical community for cooperation so that oral antiviral medication can be prescribed first. I see. So yes, the pills are just as good as the injection. So Mm. for anyone in Korea, there is no need to worry about the shortage of injections. Right. Let's move on to our second story. What do you have for us? It's been found that the number of young people attempting extreme diets in South Korea is increasing. The Korea Disease Control and Prevention Agency released a study on Monday on weight loss attempt rates according to adult body mass index classification. And according to the study, three out of 10 women in their 20s perceived themselves as obese, even though they were of normal weight. 
Well, that sounds concerning. First, how was the study conducted? The study was conducted by analyzing the body mass index of adults using data from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey from 2013 to 21. And as a result, 28.3% of women in their 20s with normal body weight perceived themselves as having an obese body type. This figure is much higher than that of men, where the number stood at 6.9%. The subjective obesity awareness rate, which refers to people of all ages perceiving themselves as fat, has steadily increased since 2013, reaching 84.6% for men and 94.7% for women during the survey period. And this has led them to go on unnecessary diets then? You're correct. Misconceptions about weight led to unnecessary diet attempts. The proportion of people in their 20s who attempted to lose weight was 15.8% for men and 53.9% for women. This means that half of women in their 20s have attempted to shed pounds even though they are of normal weight. What's more problematic is that even if they are underweight, 16.2% of women in their 20s try to further reduce their size. Well, that sounds dangerous even. Why is this trend getting more popular now? And did the study suggest any solutions? The study analyzed that this is due to the social and cultural atmosphere that favors a thin body type and encourages indiscriminate weight control, and added that this phenomenon was particularly higher in Korea than in other countries. In fact, posts about losing weight to achieve an ultra-thin body figure has become a trend on social media. So the study pointed out that it's important not only to educate people about healthy body type awareness, but also to create a healthy social atmosphere through the mass media. Indeed, this is an unfortunate issue that's long persisted in Korea, but it Mm. seems more still needs to be done to promote a more healthy attitude towards uh, women's bodies. Right. Uh, Let's move on to our final story. What else has been trending? Can Lee Kang-in be Park Ji-sung's successor and propel South Korea to a long-awaited title? This is a question that the Asian Football Confederation asked last month on social media, comparing the Paris Saint-Germain midfielder to Park Ji-sung, the Korean football legend. It seems like the AFC believes he could, as he was named on the governing body's best five young stars who will shine at the 2023 AFC Qatar Asian Cup list, which was released on Monday Korean time. Well, I would think that Son Heung-min was the successor to uh, Pak Ji-sung already, but uh, let's not quibble <laughs> right. on that detail because he mm. is still a wonderful rising star as well. Right. So how did the AFC evaluate the 22-year-old footballer? The AFC reported that following his arrival in France last summer, he quickly integrated into Paris Saint-Germain team and became a key player for the French champions, along with forward Kylian Mbappe and winger uh, Ousmane Dembele. It also highlighted the possibility of Korea winning its first Asian Cup in 64 years if the winger continues his outstanding form with the Taegeuk Warriors. He has recorded four goals and three assists in his last four international matches, so he will be entering the competition on a high. Yes, he had a slow start with the French side at the beginning of the season, recovering from a muscle injury. But Mm. in recent weeks, he's become an integral part of the team and he's even helped the team win a trophy recently. That's right. The Korean star started to make his mark in October, scoring his first PSG goal against Italian side AC Milan in the UEFA Champions League. He also helped PSG win the 2023 Trophy des Champions, also known as the French Super Cup last Thursday, with a goal in just the third minute of the game. The Korean star was selected as the official man of the match. Yes, let's hope he can continue that form and help the national team to their first Asian Cup title in 64 years. Right. That's what we're going to wrap it up for today's Korea Trending. Thank you for those stories, Diane, and we'll see you next time. See you next time.
Our guest today for Touch Basin's Hall is a Korean-American chaplain at Tampa General Hospital in the U.S. who has counseled thousands of patients as they face their deaths and their families. Sometimes he is the last or even the only person the patients see before they pass away. He has shared his notable encounters with his 93,000 Instagram followers and an additional 36,000 on X. And his goal is to promote open discussions about death and the concept of mortality. His name is J.S. Park and he joins us today via video call to tell us about his work. Chaplain Park, hello and thank you for your time today. I'm very honoured, happy and grateful to be here with you. Can you introduce us to yourself, in, uh, to, to our listeners in your own words? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, yes. Uh, online, I go by J.S. Park. Uh, my first name is June. I'm Korean-American and I have been a hospital chaplain uh, for the last eight years. I work at a thousand plus bed hospital. Uh, it's a level one trauma centre. And our technical clinical definition, I guess you could say, is I'm a non-judgmental, non-anxious, comforting presence. And so we attend every single death, code blue, trauma. We help with end-of-life care. And we are there uh, to offer comfort and grief counsel. And sometimes we act in a religious or spiritual capacity, but very times we are often just there for the patient for anything that they, they need, whether they want to share or grieve, or to tell their story. We are simply with our patient. Right, and one apt description, I think, that you have described yourself as uh, before, I believe, is a therapist. So the mixture between therapist and priest. Yes, yes. It's a, a little joke I made, I guess, a, a priest and a therapist, which is a therapist. Certainly, therapists can do many things that a chaplain uh, cannot and does not do, just as a priest does as well. But we fit in that intersection of faith and mental health and therapy. And so a therapist may go and see their patient and have a progress and uh, over a long term. Um, and a priest may do some religious duties and sacraments and will also preach and impart information. Uh, but I'm there often on the worst moment, the worst day of my patient's life, to offer assistance and support for the crisis that they're going through and or that their family is also going through. And so chaplains often see uh, the very worst of suffering and we sit with and are with our patient through the hardest of it. And we can talk about faith and sometimes we don't talk about faith, but certainly we offer support for everything our patient is going through mentally, spiritually, and emotionally. How did you end up in this position and on this path you know, I actually um, uh, majored in psychology and then I made a last minute switch and went to seminary and thought I could help people as a pastor. And I did pastoral ministry for almost a total of seven years. And what I found is that in the church, I was a little bit on the outside. I grew up an atheist. I didn't grow up in the church. And I always felt like I was on the outside looking through a window. I didn't quite fit in doing pastoral ministry. And sometimes uh, with church leadership, I loved my people, uh, but I wasn't always good at the stuff behind closed doors, you know, church politics and things like that. Maybe I wasn't smart or savvy enough for it. <laughs> and then uh, I left and I found uh, chaplaincy 
which was to me like being a pastor, but outside of the church. There are chaplains that serve at prisons, hospitals, in the military, law enforcement, fire department, uh, in workplaces. And when I heard about what a chaplain does, I thought there's more than just being a pastor at a church. We can also offer spiritual and emotional support in these very difficult and hard situations. And I remember being very, very uncertain and unsure still on my first week as a chaplain. Uh, but um, I still remember my very, very first case, my very, very first patient. And of course, I'm uh, changing some details to protect their privacy. Mm. But I accompanied uh, a doctor in the emergency room, and we broke the news to this family that uh, their loved one had just died in the emergency room. And uh, this family, their grief was loud and um, their grief was hard. And uh, I offered the best support that I could. And I realized in that moment, this is the work that I want to do. This is the room where I belong. And I wanted to be a voice and a sounding board and a presence, the kind of presence that I needed growing up that I didn't always have. And I knew I was called to do this ministry. Well, it's incredible work that you do. How, what do you think it was about you, though, that led to this calling, as you said? Was there something in your upbringing, in your past that influenced you? Where do you think this desire, need to help people in such a difficult position, where do you think it comes from? Yeah, you know, I had mentioned earlier that I didn't always have the presence that I needed. I didn't always have the voice that I needed growing up. Um, I, as many children of immigrants, uh, suffer quite a bit of, uh, abuse and childhood trauma. My parents, I love them and I've since reconciled with them. Uh, they were doing the best that they could. Uh, but growing up, they didn't always know what to do and how to do it right. And so certainly I suffer quite a bit of abuse and trauma and also, uh, with racism and with bullying. I grew up in Florida, which is not always a friendly place. And often I was the only Korean growing up uh, that I knew in my circles. And so through all of this, I didn't always have someone cheering for me, rooting for me, seeing me, and hearing me. And so I always wanted to be in a place where I could give back, where I could give what I didn't have. And so in some ways, the trauma, of course, is something I never would ask for. The abuse is not something I would ever ask for. But... I think because that happened, I wanted to be in a place where I could be at bedside or with or alongside someone who was suffering, hurt, abused, and alone, and let them know that they were not alone, that I was there with them, and to be somehow a reflection of God, even if I didn't use the word God or bring up religion, that I could still be hands, feet, and heart for this person. And so in many ways, I was deprived of presence, even though people in my life did try their best, I was still deprived of what I needed. And so my calling is always, what can I be uh, that I needed? I can't imagine what you must go through on a daily basis. It sounds so uh, difficult facing death every day and, and not just that, trying to help people through it as well. You said that you were a non-judgmental, non anxious uh, figure by the bedside. But how do you find that? How do you find yourself 
not be judgmental, not be anxious around this difficult situation? And what keeps you going? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, when someone is grieving their loss, if a family member just lost their loved one, if a patient is just told you have cancer and you don't have much longer to live, if a patient realizes they have very few treatment options left, uh, if a family has gotten in a car accident and uh, one of them will not make it, um, the grief reaction, of course, is going to be very strong. And for some reason, socially, when we see someone hurting or grieving, there's an instinct in us to tell them it's going to be okay. Calm down. You'll be fine. Just be strong. Don't cry. In some ways, we want to suppress or calm down their emotion uh, to make them not express their extreme reaction. Because in some ways, we become uncomfortable when we see someone crying or screaming. And I've seen patients and families rolling on the ground, screaming, shaking their fist, even punching the wall or throwing a chair. And of course, that could make anyone uncomfortable. But I never judge anyone for their reaction. My role is to validate their grief response. If they want to cry, I am there to weep with them. If they're going to scream, I am there to validate their very, very hurt response. And so part of not judging is to not gloss over or just steamroll their emotional response, not to shame them for it, not to guilt them for it, uh, but to simply allow them to be. So much of what I've learned in my own Korean heritage is that there have been so many times throughout Korean history when our voice has cried out for better, for more, because of so much that has happened to us in our Korean heritage and history. And so much of what I see uh, in American and Westernized culture is we just need to get back to shape and get better and keep working and keep going. Mm. And certainly we see that a little bit in Asian uh, culture as well. Um, but what I'm trying to learn is, and what I'm trying to validate in my patients and their families is, your body's response is natural. You just experience loss. Of course, you're going to react. Right. So I'm going to hold as much room in response, uh, much room as I can, with as big of a heart as I can for my patients and their families. As I mentioned, um, you share. You as I mentioned, uh, you share some of your stories with a considerable uh, audience that you have uh, reached on social media. They have the stories have inspired, comforted, and helped a lot of people. Uh, which stories that you've shared sticks with you uh, the most or which stories perhaps have uh, reached or resonated with people the most, do you think? You know, I think it seems to be the stories about um, when my patients are dying or have died and the things that we can learn uh, from their life and how quickly it goes and how fast it is. And, um, you know, when I share stories about my patients having died, and they always want to, in the end, very often, I should say, uh, be seen and be visible, because people have regrets. Uh, people, when they live their lives, there are things that they uh, didn't get to do, or that they did that they feel like they shouldn't have done. 
And so in their last moments, in our last moments, we want to be seen and to be made visible. And so very often it's those kinds of stories where people, all of us, are um, confronted with our mortality and our frailty that um, life is very, very quick and fast. And, you know, I'm surprised, to be honest, that people read want to read those stories. And I think what that tells me is that people do want to talk about loss and grief and death, that they may be scared, but they still want to talk about it. Mm. And earlier when I was saying that, you know, our instinct is to suppress emotion or to tell people to calm down, there's still something in us we know it's right to be able to talk about our reaction to loss, the fear that we have of approaching loss. And so all these stories that I share about deathbeds, um, about people's last words, about wishes they wish they got to fulfill in their own life, I think we want to read those stories because we want to be able to live fully. Right. Um, and we want to be able to understand that death is a certainty. And I, I truly, truly believe that some, that's a conversation that we do want to have, even though we're scared of having it. Right. It's extraordinary work that you've been doing. And thank you for sharing uh, some of those moving stories with us today. Finally, is there any advice then you can give to our listeners about dealing with the fear of death, who perhaps do want to uh, talk about this more as well and explore this more as well, but perhaps are afraid to? You know, I wish I could say that uh, having seen everything that I've seen, that um, I've come to this place of peace with it. But to be honest, um, I'm still afraid a lot because I've seen so much and I've seen a lot of suffering uh, that I worry, you know, for my own family. I think about my own death a lot. Um, and there are times that even when I'm sitting and talking with someone, I'll have some death anxiety. And just imagine this may be the last time that I talk with this person. I guess if I had any advice or a lesson that I could give, it would be that fearing death is natural, that um, it's nothing to be ashamed of. And in some ways that that death anxiety has really helped me to be in the moment and to be here and to recognize that this is all we have. And so maybe in some ways, even though it's very hard, death anxiety has also given me a deeper life appreciation. And so in everything that we're seeing in the world right now, um, I'm always asking, how can I be fully present and fully here and to give myself in this moment to this person and uh, not to wait, not to wait, uh, but to be here now. Well, it's been quite an experience to talk with you today uh, and thank you for sharing your time with us. We'll have to end it there. We've been speaking to Chaplain J.S. Park from Tampa General Hospital. Once again, thank you for your time. Thank you. Appreciate you. Hi, I'm Chang Ray Lee, the author of Native Speaker. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio.
We've come now to Morning Edition Preview, our closing segments where we take a look at some interesting features, reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, we have joining us in the studio our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. Okay. So what's the first article that you have for us today? So next week, the K-pop girl group Esper will be releasing a song. And I think both fans of the group and people who enjoy Korean music from the 90s will be interested in it. That's because Esper will be releasing the remake of the popular song Regret of the Times by K-pop groups Soteji and Boys. That's what uh, Hong Yu's article in the entertainment section of the Korea Herald is about. Yes, Soteji and Boys, they are considered to be the godfathers of K-pop. So it's almost like Esper are paying homage to the start of the genre that's uh, taking over the world now. Yeah, so this remake is part of Esper's label, SM Entertainment's remastering project, which brings to light songs from the 90s and early 2000s that younger fans may not know about. And they don't have long to wait. That's because the track will be released on Monday at 6pm in Korea time. Uh, A music video for the remake will also be released at the same time on YouTube. Yes, it'll be interesting to see what people make of this remake and what it sounds like, because it's not a typical song that uh, perhaps many people would associate with (laughs) K-pop. Right, yeah. So I listened to the song while I was reading the article, because I'm not familiar with it, Mm. and it was not what I was expecting. The article says that it is an alternative rock song with energetic band sounds and anti-establishment lyrics. To me, like not taking into account the Korean lyrics, it sounded a bit like a song you would hear playing at a sports game like baseball or football in Korea. Right. But yeah, apparently... uh, um, Esper brings its own twist to the single with its unique and powerful vocal and I'm curious to see what people think of it. Yes, the lyrics are quite important. It's actually a very controversial song uh, mm. at the time. It was banned by the government for, as you said, its uh, anti-establishment lyrics. Right. But uh, because of that, it has quite an important place in K-pop history. So it'll be interesting to see how Esper interprets this seminal song and how mm. fans uh, take to the lyrics as well, whether they change any of it as well. It'll be interesting to see. Let's continue on to our next article. What do you have for us? Uh, I have Jin Ji-hye's article that is on the front page of the Korea Times. It's about how the Korean government plans to expand opportunities for Korean language learning around the world to attract more foreign students to domestic universities. Yes, the Korean government has actually been trying to attract more foreign students to uh, make up for the decrease in the number of uh, Korean university students, right? Right, yeah. So it has also been trying to secure skilled foreign workers for high-tech industries as Mm. well. Yeah, for this new project, the government has selected nine regional education offices, including Seoul, Incheon, Gwangju, Daegu and Busan. Their jobs will be to help increase international exchanges and to get more people to study in Korea. Is there any information on how the education offices plan on doing this? There is actually. So they plan to work with Korean language learning centres in other countries. The the article actually gave an example. The Incheon Education Office plans to operate camps in Thailand, Vietnam and Uzbekistan. It will work with language centres at these locations and give students the chance to experience Korean culture. To help the nine education offices succeed in this mission, the government will provide a special grant of 10.4 billion won, so that's $7.9 million to each office. Mm. This will start as a pilot project at first, and it could be expanded further depending on the results of the pilot. Yes, so for more information, check out tomorrow's Korea Times and its front page. That's where we're going to wrap it up for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's all for our show today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon jang And thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye.
KBS World Radio offers all you need to know on Korea through its various programs. Are you into the latest K-pop tracks? Then K-pop Connection is your fix. Brian Ju brings you the best of K-pop and K-culture. On Korea 24, host Kwon Jang-ho helps listeners digest all the biggest stories coming out of South Korea. Keep up with what's happening on the peninsula by listening to Korea 24. Learn about Korean folktales on Mondays with global audiobook Once Upon a Time in Korea. If you're a bookworm, don't miss Books on Demand, a program that introduces Korean literature to the global audience every Tuesday. Our Wednesday program, Korea Today and Tomorrow, provides news on the latest diplomatic developments in and around the Korean peninsula. Want to go deeper than K-pop? Sounds of Korea takes a closer look at various traditional music every Thursday. KBS World Radio is your go-to channel for all things Korea. Tune in! KBS World Radio strives to promptly update our listeners on safety procedures during emergency situations. The following are recommended guidelines to follow if you're stranded while driving in heavy snow. If you're driving in heavy snow and your vehicle stops or becomes stranded, stay inside. Wait for emergency texts and broadcasts on weather conditions and instructions before you take any action. Turn on the heating. Open the window intermittently or keep it slightly open to allow ventilation. Keep clearing the snow around your vehicle so that it doesn't block the exhaust pipe. If you're travelling with other people, take turns sleeping so that someone is always monitoring the situation. If you have to abandon your vehicle, leave your contact information and the keys in the ignition slot. Contact your family to inform them about the situation. Stay calm and allow authorities to take care of the situation. Limit unnecessary use of your smartphone to conserve the battery. Please check our website at world.kbs.co.kr for up-to-date information and procedures. KBS 
World Radio.